0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From
1: 1940
0: to 1943... Allied and Axis forces battled it out in the deserts of North Africa in a campaign that swung from one side to another until a decisive British victory at El Alamein in October 1942. In today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, we're delving into the Desert War with Dr Jonathan Fennell, reader in modern history at King's College London and the author of Fighting the People's War, the British and Commonwealth armies in the Second World War. As always with this series, the questions have been submitted by listeners through our social media channels. Putting them to Jonathan was Rob Attar.
3: So I wonder if we could begin by just narrowing down some terminology, because sometimes this theatre is known as the Desert War, sometimes a North African campaign. And Do you have a preferred term for this? And do these terms actually mean the same thing?
4: I typically do refer to it as the North African campaign. There are times now when I when I wonder whether it's helpful to separate it from the East African campaign which occurs um funny enough in East Africa. And sometimes we even separate it again from the campaign that takes place in Tunisia in 1943. On the whole I think North Africa captures the the overall thrust of of, of where um the campaign happens and um, between really 1941 and 1943. The desert war seems to really focus more on on a on a specific bit of North Africa, in between, if you will, kind of Alexandria, Cairo, um the the Suez Canal and the Cyrenaican Bulge, if you can picture it kind of about about two thousand kilometers further west than that. But on the whole, North Africa will do.
3: Great. And so before we get into some of the really excellent questions that we've had sent in by listeners. I wonder if you could give us just a brief summary of the key events of the North African campaign, just so people have that background before we get into the more detailed question.
4: And I think the standard kind of chronology or periodization kicks off in September 1940, when Italian imperial forces in Libya move east, if you will, into, into Egypt and occupy a series of forts along the close to the Libyan-Egyptian border. And and following that, there's a series of kind of dramatic events. The British and Commonwealth forces counterattack towards the end of the year and and early into 1941 and and roundly beat the Italian forces in the area and drive quite far west towards that Cyrenaican bulge. After capturing huge numbers of Italian troops, um, two further kind of minor operations occur in 1941 that don't result in much change by the end of 1941 both sides are kind of you know you got you got to imagine they're looking at they they think the war is going to be over soon they can't imagine that the war is going to go on into 1945 so there's a grand battle at the end of 1941 that is called crusader uh, certainly in the in the british literature and it results initially in a in a British and Commonwealth victory, and then a a kind of brief counterattack by the Italian and German forces after that. And both sides kind of see it as a victory, but it's an inconclusive victory. Both sides are absolutely exhausted by the end of 1941, early 1942, and a period of kind of rest and recuperation occurs until the summer of 1942, when really we have quite extraordinary drama. And the Italian and German forces um, launch a very successful operation around the British defensive lines at Gazala. They capture Tobruk famously, and drive almost all the way as far as Alexandria, um, Cairo, and the and the Suez Canal until their they're stopped at the El Alamein line. I guess a a place and a battle that is kind of scorched in the memory of Britain and the Commonwealth. And there, a series of kind of static attritional battles occur over the course of July, 1942. Until the the Axis forces have one last crack uh, to, to to take Egypt and they fail in September. Then in August, then in October and November, we have the famous kind of Second Battle of Alamein, depending on how you count. Sometimes it's the Third Battle of Alamein. And um, Montgomery, who has now arrived in the desert and taken over British and Commonwealth Command, um, succeeds, and the Axis forces are gradually driven west and further west. There's a landing in French North Africa all the way on the far northwest coast, and now the Axis forces are being attacked from the east by British and Commonwealth forces, famous Eighth Army, and from the west, Anglo-American forces, until they are caught in a pincer in Tunisia and eventually defeated in May 1943.
3: Well thank you very much Jonathan, that's a really good concise summary of some of the key events, and just a couple of things that came up from that. So at the start we had, we're talking about Italian forces mainly, and then the Germans getting involved later on. When did the German forces first arrive in North Africa?
4: So the, the German forces arrived March, April 1941. And in large part, that's a consequence of the kind of disastrous Italian defeat in Operation Compass towards the end of 1940 and early 1941. But yes, we have to absolutely look at this campaign as an Italo-German campaign. The Italian forces make up the majority of the Axis forces in North Africa. And they have been in Libya, um, you know, really since 1925 when they start uh, a campaign to kind of retake what they considered um, an imperial possession. And so it's Italian forces that animate much of the early fighting, even though it is German forces that I guess I think we will remember um, when we talk about the North African campaign.
3: And then what were the two sides actually fighting for in this theatre? I mean, we know what victory meant for the Allies. What
4: could victory have meant for the Axis? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's... It's a good question isn't it? I mean for Italy it's it's an imperial war, it's a desire to to hold on and create an empire in North Africa. Italy would very much like to connect its possessions in Libya with its other possession in Ethiopia further to the east and what lies between Ethiopia and Libya well it's it's Egypt and the Suez Canal. So there are kind of grand ad, I, ideas and ambitions about Italian power in in Africa. And for the British Egypt is a massive um, military base. Um, Britain has a, has a treaty with Egypt, which effectively allows it to determine and influence sh- Egyptian politics. Access to the Suez Canal removes thousands of miles and days and weeks of travel between Great Britain and its uh, empire in the East, India, and of course the dominions in the Antipodes, etc. So it's, it's a vital, vital territory. Um, for, for Germany, the goal is, is largely to stop Italy being knocked out of the war. Um, you know, they send minimal forces to to North Africa to try and bolster the Italian effort when it looks like things are going very badly wrong for Mussolini and his forces.
3: Now, one thing that I think was apparent from your summary is the way that this conflict seemed to swing from one side to another. And we had a question from Robert Ken's on Facebook who wanted to know, Why did the campaign ebb and flow so much between the Axis and the Allies?
4: Can you picture the desert? It's flat, it's arid. Um, In some places, it's relatively good going. In other places, it's, you know, sandy and and difficult. But on the whole, there's very few really vital pieces of terrain. And so it's possible to travel miles and miles and miles and miles with relative haste and without too much problem. So without kind of big cities or, you know, major uh, rivers or mountains to kind of hinge a defence around. It was possible for an enormous amount of movement. And we can talk about armies kind of going hundreds of miles west and hundreds of miles east. So I think in large part it's down to the terrain, it's down to the relatively un- relatively uninhabited characteristic of the area and um, that allowed for that you know, level of movement. And another th- question we
3: had on Facebook was from Alex Plotkin, who asked... What was the relative combat
4: effectiveness
3: of the British Eighth Army compared with the Africa Corps? And that's the Africa Corps is a German,
4: the German force, Ye- isn't it? Yes, this the German part. Yes, although at times it does um, include some Italian formations. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a it's a grand old question, isn't it? And one that I think historians will debate um, for for years to come. It depends how you how you define combat effectiveness, doesn't it? And how you understand it. Is combat effectiveness about winning? In which case, it's hard to say that the British and Commonwealth forces weren't more effective than the Germans because ultimately and the Italians because they ultimately succeed. Is combat effectiveness more about kind of efficiency and the, the extent to which one can achieve stated objectives with the means available? And you could argue that in many ways, the Germans were a more efficient force. And theoretically, at least, they fought in ways that we might we might encourage commanders today to fight. They were maneuverous they were aggressive, and they tried to fight using all arms. So there was a high level of coordination. The German forces tended to employ mission command. So they encouraged their subordinates to use their own initiative, to use their intelligence, to look at what was in front of them and act according to their own education and understanding of the problem of war. Whereas when we look at, say, the British and Commonwealth forces, theoretically, they were much more centralised in their approach and um, much more cautious. Um, at times, there was less of a reliance on manoeuvre and aggression and more of a kind of focus on attrition and control. British leaders were not always um, trusted to the extent that maybe subordinate German commanders were trusted. And therefore, you kind of had a less dynamic approach towards so Theoretically, we would say, you know, the British Commonwealth approach was was less advanced, but they won. And really, you know, the ultimate job of a commander is to find a way to win with the tools at his or her disposal. And in that sense, the British and Commonwealth forces ultimately managed to get the job done. They may have had slightly less sophisticated means or a less well-trained um, force, but they made use of those means in a, in a way that led them to victory. You know, ultimately, the currency is victory here, isn't it? In, in, a, in a world war, you've got to win. And the British and Commonwealth forces found a way, in spite of their limitations, to get the job done. And so I would be inclined to, to give the gold star to the British and Commonwealth forces more than I would to the Axis. And I suppose it's important when we're talking about the British and Commonwealth forces,
3: as you've been doing, to to emphasise the fact that a large proportion of these troops were not British. They were from, you know, throughout the Commonwealth, throughout the Empire, um, and even some other Allied powers as well, weren't they?
4: I mean, it's extraordinary in many ways. I mean, so Ashley Jackson wrote a wonderful book a while back ago called The British Empire and the Second World War. And he says, in late 1941, the Eighth Army was a quarter British and three quarters Imperial. It included... Not just men from Australia, Britain, India, New Zealand, South Africa and southern Rhodesia, but also men from Basutuland, Bishwanaland, Ceylon, modern day Sri Lanka, Cyprus, the Gambia, the Gold Coast, Kenya, Mauritius, Nigeria, Palestine, Rodrigues, Sierra Leone, the Seychelles, Swaziland, Tanganyika and Uganda. And we can throw in there as well non-imperial forces from France. Czech forces, Polish forces, Greek forces I mean it is a stunning mix of human beings from different cultures and backgrounds with different dietary requirements and and hopes and loves and hates, so yeah, a, a remarkable kind of complex force
3: and then coming on um to one of the other key players, we had a question from Diogo Morgado on Twitter. And he writes, was the overall performance of the Italians as bad as the wartime propaganda suggested? And this is actually something that comes up not just in North Africa, but in general, Italy has a reputation for being far inferior to their German allies. But but is that fair?
4: Yeah, I'm dealing with this. So I've I've got a new project. I'm trying to write a new history of the Second World War. And I'm currently kind of deep into thinking about uh, the Italian experience. And I think we're really unfair on Italy. And, And I and i wonder where that comes from i think it's probably some cultural stereotypes involved um and another probably less than positive uh, emotional traits the italians we have got to remember have been fighting for a long time by 1940 1941 and 1942 i mean there's a there's a coherent argument to say that the second world war starts in 1935 with the italian invasion of ethiopia and um, the italians have been grappling with Libya since, you know, at least 1925 um, in the kind of the fascist period. But Italy has been, you know, certainly from 1935, it is fairly highly mobilized society. It gets caught up in relatively quick victory in Ethiopia, but then embroiled in a kind of counterinsurgency campaign against Ethiopian patriots. And then as soon as that is kind of somewhat resolved, a huge number of Italian forces um, are sent to the civil war in Spain. So Italy and its people and its soldiers gets very little break. So by 1941, if you read the letters of Italian soldiers, um, they are calling out dying for a break. You know, certainly those Italian soldiers who are in North Africa say, we need some leave, which is very difficult if you consider there's a Mediterranean in the way, and then in the Mediterranean you have the Royal Navy, which is still at this stage a truly um, powerful force. If we think about the Italian economic miracle post-1945, you know, it's ridiculous to say that Italy was incapable of, of producing, you know, very effective combat power and weapons during the Second World War. So the the kind of question has to be, why didn't Italy do better than it did? It had the capability. And I'm playing with this in, in my own research at the moment. Is it a question of, of mobilisation, um, kind of emotional mobilisation for the war? Again, if you read um, morale reports and censorship summaries, inflation is rampant in Italy the censorship summaries say that you know italian soldiers primary concern is their family this is kind of i you know, say this is this is the problem of our race you know we are family people and then you read the censorship summaries and families are really struggling back home in italy because of inflation because of the challenges of a long protracted series of conflicts and um, certainly you know, the 10 years of fascist war so uh, yeah i think i think italy has the potential to do better i don't think italy does as bad as it you know, detractors suggest. Let's treat Italy as a a meaningful partner in the Axis rather than a kind of extremely subservient addition to Germany's war in Europe.
3: There are, I'd say, two personalities, I think it's fair to say, who dominate the popular understanding of the Desert War, which would be on the German side, uh, when Rommel, and uh, Bernard Montgomery, probably on the British side. And we've had a couple of questions submitted on both of them. Now, first up, we have Brendan Mitchell on Facebook, who asked, "Is Rommel's incredible reputation from the campaign truly
4: warranted?" Ah, <laughs> uh, Rommel. Um, where to start? I mean, there's no doubt. I think that he has talent. That he can see opportunities in a way that other generals perhaps cannot. He has that. He has that gift, and he's aggressive, and he can bring his people with him. He's charismatic, and I think, you know, I think the general sense is that German soldiers did look up to him. At the same time, let's come back to that previous point. The ultimate goal of a commander is to achieve success with the material and means at his or her disposal. And Rommel overdoes it. He bites off more than he can chew. He's given fairly, you know, direct instructions not to to do so in North Africa. His goal is to stop the whole thing from falling apart, not to necessarily open a a huge new campaign for for Germany in 1941, when Germany has very clear ambitions elsewhere in this global war. It wants to subdue and occupy um, the Soviet Union. So if we assess Rommel outside of kind of the theory and look at his actual behavior, I am less inclined to be positive about Rommel as a military commander. Because he's ultimately unsuccessful. He, he tries to bite off more than he can chew. He doesn't pay attention, you know, famously to his logistics. Um, and that's part of the professional role of a military commander. Um, it's all very well winning briefly in the short term, um, as spectacular as that can look. Um, but his ultimate job was was not to lose, and he, and he failed in that sense.
3: And then on the on the other side, we had a question, another question from Alex Plotkin on Facebook, who asked, "Did Montgomery's leadership make a difference to the outcome of the Second Battle of El Alamein?"
4: So Mon- Montgomery is as I suppose a controversial character as as they come. Um, he is controversial, like Rommel, um, and people tend to. See him in a very binary way. He's a he's a hero or he's a villain. Um, he has a a difficult personality, and I think that's been charitable. I would certainly be in the um, in the camp that sees his contribution in the second half of 1942 in a positive light. He, he he comes along in the desert at a moment of I think you know great crisis. So if we go back to the kind of summary at the very beginning. Um, in the middle of 1942, the Axis forces launch a very successful operation against Gazala They to take Tobruk, and they're now, you know, threatening the gates of Cairo and the Suez Canal, if you will. The initial thrust is stopped by Montgomery's predecessor, uh, a gentleman called Claude Auchinleck, And then Montgomery takes over, and you know, th- the army he takes over is, is tired, it's been there for years in need of a rest it's arguably undertrained um it's relatively well equipped um, but it lacks confidence and i think you know morale is an issue and it doesn't take um you know military genius to say that these factors can lead to ineffective performance so he 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 rocks up and he he does the basics really really very well he, he, he you know he he looks at the means available he says here's my objective here's the means i have How am I going to go about winning this battle? And he fights, you know, famously in a very conservative way. He uses guns. It's very attritional. He wears the axis down. And he wins. And I find it hard to be overly critical of an individual who balances ends and means and gets the job done. He reanimates an army that is tired, that is perhaps uncertain of its direction so he has the emotional intelligence to connect with the citizen soldier and that is his tool and he you know he he adapts doctrine, you know, how the army is going to fight in a way that reflects his means available. And he makes maximum use of his strengths and tries to minimise his weakness as he gets the job done. So I would be positive about Montgomery, um, accepting, you know, that later on, perhaps in Normandy, and you know, maybe at times he's less effective, but certainly I think his contribution in, in this period of the war, at the end of, you know, the, towards um, the middle and end of 1942 is really quite, um, quite impressive.
0: still to come on the History Extra podcast.
4: At times, the British High Command instructs the soldiers in, to, to try and, you know, have a less positive view of their German enemies. You know, we have to remind you that these are, these are the enemy. These are the, look at all the awful things that they're doing
1: elsewhere. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate
2: Visit BetterHelp.com slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, hel pcom slash History Extra.
3: Now, on Twitter, we had another question from Diogo Morgado, who asked, was victory in the desert mainly a question of logistics, i.e., were the Allies just better supplied than
4: the Germans? Uh, There's certainly a thread in the literature that would argue that passionately that, you know, the distances at play um, and the difficulties of maintaining forces in a very hostile environment. It's very hot during the day. It's very cold at night. The sand gets everywhere. Um, It's a war of manoeuvre, which requires vehicles, trucks, tanks, etc. Trucks and tanks can't move without petroleum. Human beings can't survive in the desert. They can't go and, you know, take food from Civilians, they can't raid the crops in the desert because there isn't any. So the food and the water has to be brought with the soldiers. So it becomes a uh, you know a really technical and logistical challenge. So, so the argument is certainly not that logistics are unimportant. Logistics are vitally important. How do we weigh then logistics as compared to the other factors that influence or determine the outcome of the campaign? You know, we can you know we've talked a little bit about leadership, and um, we can talk more about morale and um, we can talk about technology and all these things. So I think it has to be understood in light of other factors. It's not the most important, but it is certainly among the most significant factors at play. And at certain moments, it does play, you know, perhaps uh, ha- have more importance than in others. So Rommel is really stretched by September 1942, as he's, as he's hoping to take Egypt and kind of, throw the final and decisive blow in the campaign. And he has very little petroleum available because British submarines and aircraft and ships are sinking Italian boats as they try to get from Italy to North Africa. And that reduces his ability to manoeuvre. Rommel's approach is aggressive, it's maneuverist. And um, he likes to launch these kind of deep encirclement uh, operations south into the desert and then come in behind the British and Commonwealth forces. And he's unable to do that in September 1942 because he doesn't have the, the fuel to do so. And that's a matter of logistics. And so he ends up fighting a battle that, you know, in a way that doesn't really suit his forces. That's not to say that that determines the outcome because it's still possible for, cre- you know, creative or aggressive forces um, to find a solution to the combat problem, but he certainly isn't helped by the lack of means and um, by the lack of petrol um, at this, decide- this, this kind of crucial part of the campaign. It's like in all things, right? There's no civil war. There's no, you know, no historian is going to say there's there's um, a kind of a single answer to a human problem. But I think am um, absolutely right to include logistics in the in any calculation of why one side lost and the other side succeeded in any campaign.
3: Okay, so we we had an interesting question from Sweden Hungary on Twitter. Um and they wanted to know whether the war was as civilized as we're led to believe. And I suppose it's true this theater has got a reputation for being less brutal than say the eastern front or the pacific war and things like that, but
4: but was it really that civilized in quote marks? I've thought about this pretty deeply um or a while ago though and I I looked in in some depth for kind of examples of barbarity, say, caught up in the censorship summaries. So soldiers write home to their loved ones. Their letters are turned into weekly and biweekly censorship reports, which are effectively morale reports. And they give a really rich view of how soldiers are experiencing um, the war. And there's very little in the censorship summaries that is kind of hateful which is which is remarkable in a way and in fact at times um at times the british high command instructs the soldiers in, to, to try and you know have a less positive view of their german enemies you know, we have to remind you that these are these are the enemy these are the look at all the awful things that they're doing elsewhere but soldiers who are, say, captured, who then escape because of the desert, right? And it's, it's relatively difficult to hold on to POWs when you get them. So you do get a lot of escaped POWs and then their letters are censored um, and you get kind of nice excerpts. And they tend to be very positive about their German captures. They say that they're treated um, civilly and um, with respect, and um, that they're looked after. Now they're less positive about the Italians. Um, and I think probably the Italians do treat prisoners less well. Again, I think those... Um, assessments are kind of infused by certain cultural um, expectations of of Italy and Italians. Now, some German scholars have kind of, you know, highlighted what um, the German forces intended to do had they taken Cairo and indeed, you know, taken the Suez Canal in Egypt. And I think we can fully, ex- we could have expected that, you know, the Jewish population would have been murdered and that it would have been truly- her- horrendous, so it's I think one has to be careful um, not to overdo it if the the German Italian forces had have managed to take you know big you know, cities and areas with large populations, it could have turned very nasty indeed, but because most of the campaign occurs in relatively uninhabited parts of North Africa, there's less opportunity for the barbarity that we we observe in in on the Eastern Front and in the Pacific.
3: And that, and that is a good point, actually, isn't it? Because we talk about a lot about these armies, but they're actually fighting over terrain that in a completely different part of the world where, where other people live, although admittedly, like you say, not, not hugely well inhabited. But there must have been, you know, there obviously were some civilians caught up in this conflict. And we had a couple of questions about that. So we had AgroBiodiverse on Twitter asked, what were the effects of the campaign on the local population and environment? And franchise five hundred five and Instagram wanted to know how did the local populations view the two sides. So I wondered if you could just kind of give us a general sense of what this war meant for the people living in North Africa who did get caught up in it, and whether they had a preference over
4: who emerged victorious. I think it's very important to to, to look at those caught in the middle, and we we do tell the story um, typically through Italian and German and, and British eyes. And um, you know, for locals, this you know, there's there's no love of imperialism. You know, Egyptian politicians um, and others, you know, quite happily have the British out of their country. The Senussi, the local Libyans are treated appallingly by um, the Italian um, imperial entity. I mean, I think over the course of, if you will, conquering Libya, there's something like 60,000 killed in Cyrenaica, which is kind of the eastern province. I'm pretty sure I think the Italians use, um, you know, gas and other forms of chemical weapons, um, it's, it's pretty ugly when you read the censorship summaries for both sides. So I've, I've managed to look now at the British and Commonwealth and also, um, increasingly at the Italian ones. There's, there's no doubt that, um, there's an element of racism in the way, um, the locals are perceived by the, by the Imperial forces. They're caught in the middle, the locals, they're caught in the middle of two Imperial entities fighting over empire and usually when people get caught in the middle they, they end up getting harmed. Um so I think yes there's there's no love for either side. What is interesting is you have actually quite a quite a a, a large number of Italian settlers in Libya who if we yeah, I don't know whether we whether it's right to count them as local but they certainly according to what I've read so far seem to be positive about um Italian efforts. Um but again struggle terribly with with inflation and increasing difficulty of maintaining their farms and homesteads as the link between the colony in Libya and you know, the homeland or the motherland back in Italy is is severed by by the Royal Navy and, and and Allied Air Forces. So it's it's a mixed and complex picture, I think. And one thing that we haven't talked a huge
3: amount about yet is the actual experience of fighting in the desert, which is obviously very alien terrain to for for a lot of these troops, who, you know, come from parts of Western and Southern Europe. How difficult was it to actually fight a war in such inhospitable conditions?
4: I think it's pretty much as as awful as it gets in some ways. Um, it's hot, awfully hot. I mean, we can talk about temperatures of forty degrees Celsius at times. Um, it's arid; there's very little water available. So you know, the soldiers develop you know ways to to make the most of what little water they have. You know, you, you drink in the morning, in the evening, at times when the heat doesn't force you to sweat all the all, all the water out. You know, um, what water is left over, you use to wash or to shave. There isn't that much water left over. And um, British forces start to use petrol, which is abundant um, for this, you know, war of manoeuvre to, to wash their clothes. The food is monotonous. Um, and it's really only towards the end of the campaign that, that say, the British and Commonwealth forces start to bring in more variety in terms of food. Um, because it's remote, it's often hard to get, you know, mail and stuff. And, um, you know, citizen soldiers are primarily, you know, young men with, you know, loved ones back home or families back home. And you see it also with the Italian forces. Um, you know, they miss their loved ones. And so being in this remote place where you're surrounded by men, Far from, you know, anything that we would consider kind of comfortable. I'd say just about as difficult as it gets. And a sense of isolation, you know, you've got to you know, picture the distances, you know, hundreds and hundreds of kilometres, thousands of kilometres, um, to, you know, for of kind of what would have seemed very inhospitable territory to, as you say, Southern Europeans and, and individuals from um, Britain and, and other parts of the empire.
3: So we've looked so far at various different aspects of the North African campaign, but so we've not yet discussed the kind of crux of it. Why did this matter so much? And Brendan Mitchell on Facebook asked, what was the strategic impact of the desert war on the Second World War as a whole?
4: Another good question. Again, it comes back for me at the moment. I'm I'm thinking about this at at the moment from my own research, and it comes back, I think, to taking Italy seriously. You know, Italian GDP in and around the end of the 1930s is not so dissimilar to France. Um, You know, it has economic potential, reasonably large population. So knocking Italy out of the war is actually quite a big deal. And I think a bigger deal than some of the literature um, allows. So for the empire, the British and Commonwealth empire, um, getting to grips with Italian power, um, wearing it down um dragging Germany, albeit in small portions when you think of the, the number of divisions that are fighting on the Eastern Front, but dragging, you know, one, two, three divisions eventually, you know, more in Tunisia, um, into the fight in North Africa is is useful. So in that sense, you know, for, for Britain and the Commonwealth and, and the Allies, it is a very useful tool to knock out um one of the weaker, but I think still important members of the Axis. It ensures um, access to the Suez Canal, which is the vital gateway, if you will, to the empire in the East. For the Axis forces, North Africa is, is significant in kind of other ways. It's significant for Italy because it's um, part of their overall drive to war, which is to create a sufficiently large economic bloc, an empire, if you will, so that Italy can compete in a globalized world. So Italy wants access to resources. Italy wants its own empire. Um, and that is driving it um, in many ways in North Africa. For Germany, it wants to maintain its um, its ally, its close ally. And so it's willing to send forces to North Africa in 1941 to prop up Italian forces after things go slightly, ro- well, fairly majorly wrong. Um, but there's no doubt, you know, when you look at the war writ large and you look at the number of divisions, um, Involved in North Africa, say German divisions involved in North Africa, compared to the number of German divisions involved in on the Eastern Front. And um, North African can look pretty insignificant. So I think you do have to to situ- situate Italy. If, if if you situate Italy as a, as a more important member of the Axis, then I think North Africa takes on an additional significance. If you look at the Axis as very much Germany with with Italy just tagged on as a bit of a as a, as a minor partner. Then you know, I think legitimately you can look at the campaign as 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 a sideshow, and many current histories do. Um, I think actually we need to pay more attention to Italy, and I guess I'm going to be writing about that in the coming years.
3: So obviously, at the time, Germany was also heavily involved in Barbarossa, but for Britain, this was, I suppose, our main area of land combat until the Normandy campaign and Italy. So how How important was this for Britain domestically and for the British population, British war leadership? How much was the desert war
4: coming back home and, and affecting morale at home? If we look at kind of um British empire um combat casualties by theater um during the war, it's the Mediterranean and the Middle East, um if we include East Africa, Italy eventually, and the balkans is is by far the the area where the most number of casualties are incurred. So it is absolutely at the heart of, I think, British memory of the war, Britain's story around the war, and the kind of the toing and froing in the desert is, you know, is certainly a major part of how people back home are experiencing the war. And that's in a way why I think, you know, for historians, it's so interesting to look at some of these, these sources, such as, you know, um, censorship and you know the, the the toing and froing of letters between the home front and the battle front. Now, where I have statistics for this, so there's something like forty billion letters sent between the German home front and the battle front during the war. You get that number in your head, like forty billion. We reckon that the Americans are sending. I think you know by the middle of the war, about the American soldiers are sending about ten million letters home a day, and it's something similar for the toing and froing for for Italian letters. So, you know, what's going on at the battlefront is very much, as you kind of allude, part of the everyday life of ordinary people. Because the social media of the time, you know, the highway of information is, is letters rather than tweets and, you know, posts and and whatever. So, yes, I think there's a, there's a wonderful graph in one book where you see kind of um, home morale reports and, you know, whether it's good, bad or indifferent. And certainly in the middle of 1942, when things are going pretty badly wrong in most parts... Um, home morale is is affected negatively, I think, by what's going on in the desert. You're pointing to, I think, a vital issue, which is to get away from an assessment of the war that focused solely on campaigns and and the hard, if you will, military history. And that brings families into the frame as actually maybe the the core um, unit of analysis. How did groups of human beings, families, um, make sense of the war for them? And to what extent then did it influence their willingness to serve? Um, in many ways, it appears, the Italians, while recognizing the centrality of families, don't look after the family sufficiently. I'm, I'm just building my understanding of this, to be frank, um, don't seem to be able to look after the family sufficiently. And at times, again, the family dynamic in the desert for, for British and Commonwealth soldier breaks down. You know, we know that lawyers are sent out to the desert to try and help individuals who are having troubles with wives back home. You know, the number of divorces increase because of the separation. And again, they're sending lawyers to advise soldiers, how do you deal with what's going on? Um, and of course, women back home are suffering from, from men misbehaving in the brothels of Cairo, uh, etc. as well. So it's a two-way thing. I think perhaps we should not separate the home front and the battlefront as much as we, as we do. And looking at that interaction maybe enlivens our understanding of this, of this horrible global war.
0: That was Dr. Jonathan Fennell. His most recent book, Fighting the People's War, the British and Commonwealth Armies and the Second World War, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. If you're interested in reading a feature about El Alamein, head to historyextra.com and type those words into the search bar. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newitt.